please bless us as we go to the book of 1 Corinthians. Please teach us. Please give us soft hearts that are eager to receive correction and direction. And please encourage us, Lord, in the wonderful grace that you have given us through your Son and through your church. Please help us now. Amen. Well, you can be seated. And uh, it's a very exciting Sunday as we are beginning our series in 1 Corinthians, which is a 16-chapter book. And I'd like to do 2 Corinthians afterwards, which is a 13-chapter book. So uh, this is the first of many times uh, that I'll say to please turn to 1 Corinthians. Uh, We're going to look specifically this morning at at verses 1 to 3, just the the greeting there from Paul. And we'll use these three verses to discuss the book of 1 Corinthians in whole. Uh, Look at the general themes, uh, the general problems, the general direction, the general solutions. And uh, I would have to say that um, not counting the Gospels, 1 Corinthians is my most referenced, if not favorite, book in the New Testament. Uh, And it's probably because I I use it so much to to speak to the issues in my life. It's a very practical book and incredibly profound. And so it gives me the answers that I need, that encourage me, that help me, that correct me uh, with the the temptations and sins and and weaknesses I, I face. So because of that, I am very, very excited to begin 1 Corinthians And so let's go ahead and turn our eyes to verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1, and I'll read those. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, All of us know the power of a mob. The kind of unreasonable power uh, that is exerted over individuals when they're in a, a group of people who think like them and have the same goal and the same passion. We all know how in a group like this, people can do things they would never do otherwise become people. They are nowhere else. You see this in groups of teenage boys who think it's a good idea to vandalize a freeway sign. They never do that on their own. It's only when they're uh, with a group of young men. Uh, You think of the mostly peaceful protests of 2020. People get together, they have a like mind, and all of a sudden a building's on fire. Uh, No one ever do that on their own. It's the power of the mob. You know, most Brutally and sadly is the, the power of the mob in a country, a dictatorship, a totalitarian regime where citizens keep silent uh, when their government perpetrates atrocities because of the mob. They don't want to speak up. They don't want to be the outsider. They don't want to be the one who says, hold up. Uh, in my, my high school psychology class, our teacher demonstrated this to us, the, the power of the mob, the power of the community. Uh, but she said, okay, this is great, everyone. Notice that Cody is not here yet. Uh, it was right before class started. He said, Cody's not here yet. Uh, he actually told me he's going to be tardy today. So what we're going to do is in about 20 minutes, we're all going to do an assignment. And you're going to act like you've never heard of it before. And I'm going to put two lines up on the board. One's going to be 
20 inches, the other is going to be 10 inches, and I'm going to go around the room and ask you which of the lines is longer. And all of you are going to say that the shorter line, the 10-inch line, is longer than the 20-inch line, and we'll see what Cody says. Uh, and so, you know, Cody comes back five minutes later, uh, you know, we do stuff in class, and then about 15 minutes later, um, she puts the lines up on, on the board, and she goes around the room, and, you know, every student says, yep, uh, the 10-inch line, the one to the left, that one is longer than the, the other line, the one that was, you know, clearly about double the size of the other one. And when it came to Cody, of course, Cody, he didn't stand up and say, no, you morons, that one's shorter, <laughs> what are you talking about? No, he went along with the crowd, he, he probably thought he misunderstood the question or something, or who knows, but he said, yep, yeah, like everyone says, uh, the one on the left, the one that was in fact shorter, it's longer. The reason that mobs, large and small, have such a profound effect on our behavior is because, as one historian puts it, our instinct for community is stronger than our impulse to morality. That is, we would rather violate our own notions of right and wrong, truth and falsehood, than to lose the approval of our community. We as humans care desperately what our community thinks about, it, about us. And of course, this desire for the approval of the community, it's not, it's not only bad. I mean, probably a, a vast majority of uh, you know, donations to charity and good deeds are done out of people wanting to seem good to their fellow citizens. And in that respect, the, the desire to fit in, the desire to be approved of, it leads to many good deeds as well. It's just a bit more pronounced in our minds when it's done for evil deeds. Uh, this power of the community over the individual, it's not to be denied. Uh, it's not to say that we as Christians should care what no one else thinks. We should just try to buckle up by our own inner strength. That, that really can't be done. To be human is to care about what your community thinks, what other people think. The key question is, what community do you belong to? Whose approval do you seek? What 1 Corinthians is all about, as we'll see, is that in order to live righteous, godly lives worthy of the gospel, we need to identify with the proper community. As Paul says here in verse 2, the church of God. Again, Christianity doesn't say abandon society and live by your inner strength. It says instead, dedicate yourself to God's society, the church, and live by its collective strength. The way Augustine famously put it is we can either live as citizens of the city of man or as citizens of the city of God. We can find our community with this world that is passing away. We can seek their approval. We can put our hopes and dreams with them and their values. Or we can identify with the city of God, the church that is marching on that is ignored by the world, that is in many senses invisible, that is all about deferred gratification and hope. Those are our two options. The way that you can stand your ground when all the world mocks and ostracizes you is because you belong to a different and heavenly society, the church. Of course, Cody, he's not going to contradict the 30 other uh, high schoolers in his class. But if Cody somehow knew that there was some other group of 20 people who all said the, shorter, the longer line was actually longer, he could then have the inner strength to, to say, no, the longer line is longer. I, I'm pushing that illustration to the limits, but you get the point. 
No one can stand up for something when they are truly on their own. You can't reject this world's, the society's values all on your own. You can only do it with the strength that comes from knowing I belong to a different community that has different values. And they are with me. They say the same thing. They also say to not live for this world, but to live for the kingdom to come. And it's based on my identity with them and their Lord, Jesus Christ, that I can say no to society. I can stand out even when it costs me. The church of Corinth, their situation, their temptations, their pressures, it was so much like us. Um, There are a number of churches in the New Testament whose main problem is violent persecution. And we can certainly learn from those churches. That's not really our situation, though. There's other churches in the New Testament whose main problem is uh, false teaching. Uh, I don't think that's really particularly our problem here at NBC, uh, in Hawaii, in American evangelicalism. Uh, The gospel, I think, is, is largely understood. The main pressure that Corinth faced is the one that we face. It's the pressure to fit in with the values of the opulent, successful, prosperous society around us. And that's why the book speaks to us so powerfully. The temptations that the Corinthians, Christians, face are the same ones we face. The temptations to live for this world, for the pleasures of this world, for the values and vainglory of this world. We're just like Corinth. And so for the first point, I want to tell you about the ancient city of Corinth so you can see just how similar our situations and temptations are. So point number one is the world of Corinth. Uh, Corinth is a city in southern Greece that is situated on an isthmus connecting the mainland of Greece with the peninsula Peloponnese. So you got mainland Greece, you got a little stretch of land, and then you got a big peninsula called Peloponnese. And uh, Corinth, being there on that isthmus, it's ideal geography for trade and commerce because to the north is mainland Greece. And, you know, back in the ancient world, they didn't have trains. They are going to transport, all major transportation of goods, services, is going to be on boats. So you can't take a boat over mainland Greece to the north. And then to the south, you know, theoretically, you could go around the peninsula Peloponnese and keep going on your way. But down there, it was a terrible cape. It was uh, very bad conditions in the water. No sailor wanted to go down south uh, underneath Peloponnese. So therefore, almost every ship that wanted to go from the east side to the west side or the west side to the east side of Greece in the Mediterranean they had to go through that isthmus. And that's what Corinth set itself up as, is the city that can help you get from east to west and vice versa. Uh, It was about six miles uh, apart on either side. They had one harbor here and one harbor here. And then they made a road with some channels so that they could bring small boats from one side to the other. Or if it was a bigger boat, they could at least take the cargo off and pass it along the road that way. And so because it had this uh, enviable geography, central place for commerce, Corinth became a very wealthy and influential city. And it was that way for hundreds of years until 150 BC. uh, There was a new power in the Mediterranean, uh, the Roman Empire, and Rome declared war on a number of Greek city-states, of which Corinth was the foremost. They had a war, Corinth lost. 
Uh, this was 150 BC. Rome came in and razed the city to the ground, executed all the men in Corinth, took all the women and children and sold them into slavery. And so for then 100 years, uh, Corinth was a ruinous heap, utter desolation. The city of, Gor- of Corinth ceased to exist. So 100 years after that, then 50 BC, uh, Julius Caesar uh, is in charge of the, or around 50 BC, he's in charge of the Roman Empire, and he says, hey, we should revive that location of Corinth. We should make it a new city. We should make it a Roman colony. And so you can think of Corinth in 50 BC as America in 1700. Uh, Just as America was then filled with Englishmen looking to make a new life for themselves in a new land, so Corinth was filled with upstart Romans, many of them freed from slavery, looking to make a life and wealth for themselves in a land of promise. And just like the Englishmen in America, the Romans in Corinth were very successful. They made Corinth a great and opulent and successful city once again. And so by the time that Paul writes to the city of Corinth in about 50 AD, so we had 150 BC, 50 BC, now we're up to Paul's time, 50 AD, Corinth was once again a wondrous, thriving city. It was actually the premier city for trade and commerce in the Mediterranean. It was a dominant cosmopolitan city. It was New York City, it was Los Angeles. And like New York and LA, it had a lot of people and it had lots of kinds of people, different ethnicities, different religions, different socioeconomic groups. There were the extremely rich and there were the extremely poor. The main parallel, though, that I'd like to draw between Corinth and the time of Paul and America today is that it was a land of earned wealth and self-made men. It was a land of individualism in which people by their own ingenuity, effort, charm could make themselves into wealthy, admired, beautiful people just like America today. And because of that, there was a lot of pressure on everybody to conform, to keep up with the Joneses, to get the newest product, to wear the newest fashion. Because that's the thing. Individualism, consumerism, materialism, is what defines Corinth in America today. It's not actually really all about the individual. It actually means those things actually mean that we care desperately what other people think. The reason that we care so much to get that new car, to get the new clothes, to get that surgery, it's to win the approval of society. That's what we care about. The individual effort, the consumption of goods, is really about receiving the approval of others. And to get those things, to get all, those, all that fancy stuff, you have to be able to climb the ladder of influence and wealth. And the way you do that is, as you know, it's not by what you know, but who you know. You have to fit in with the right people. You have to be approved of and accepted by the right people to climb the social ladder, to climb the corporate ladder, to make all that money that's going to buy you the stuff that's going to make you so happy. That was Corinth then, and it's America now. And Corinth, though, like America, it's not all bad. Of course it's not all bad. Because of its importance, it had the potential for great influence, just like America today. Of course, being the uh, dominant, richest country, it's going to have potential for good as well. 
And that's likely the reason that Paul decided to go there at all. And so in 50 AD, Paul on his missionary tour, he went to Corinth. And you can read about his visit there, how he set up the church in Acts chapter 18. I'd encourage you to do that. In summary, though, he spent a year and a half there, which is a long time for Paul. And then he left and continued his missionary tour. And the reason that we now have this book in front of us, 1 Corinthians, is twofold. Um, At some point after Paul had left Corinth, he wrote them a letter. Why he wrote it, we don't know. We don't have a copy of this letter. We don't really know what this letter says. All we know is that in this letter, he warned them about associating with sexually immoral people. And I say that we know about this mysterious letter. Sometimes preachers might say things like this, and you think that we have some kind of you know, special, sophisticated knowledge that there's specks of manuscripts and we've done a lot of deductions to figure it out. You know, it's very simple. It's just Paul in chapter 5. He says, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. So he said that so we know there was a previous letter. Pretty simple. Um, so he wrote that letter. He said some other stuff. And then we know that they then sent a letter back to him. And we know that because he says in your letter you asked me this. So they responded to his letter. They say, what do you mean by this, Paul? And they said, we've got a few other questions as well. We've got questions about worship and marriage and all kinds of stuff. And so that's one of the main reasons that Paul writes 1 Corinthians. It's to address their letter, to answer their questions. Uh, The other reason that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians is because there was a woman at the church named Chloe, and she had some people who came to Paul and somehow said, hey, did you hear about what's going on at at Corinth? It's very sad. The church is doing da-da-da-da-da. And so Paul hears this report. He hears it from some other people too. And so he also writes the letter to address these concerning reports. Again, that's not some special sophisticated knowledge. You look there at verse 11. It says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people, uh, etc. So 1 Corinthians... It's a book about all kinds of topics, therefore, because it's Paul's addressing the concerning reports of what's going on. He's addressing miscellaneous questions that they've written to him. Uh, It's traditionally thought that the first half of the book is him addressing the reports and the second half, the questions. The question, though, that, that I'd like to ask in this introductory sermon is, is there any kind of unifying theme about all these questions, or is it just completely random, completely miscellaneous. Some people have suggested that there was some central theological error that caused all of these different problems that raised these questions. I don't think that's quite the case. Uh, Some people say that it was just a, a problem that the leaders were antagonistic to Paul. It was a problem of leadership. I don't think that's really quite the case either. Um, this takes us to the point number two, the temptation in Corinth. The temptation in Corinth. What is the overall general problem that Paul is addressing in in Corinth? And I've already hinted at it earlier. I believe that the central problem for the church of Corinth was that they were too much like the city of Corinth. They were like everybody else. They were Christians. Paul never says, are you guys sure you're Christians? I don't know if you're a church at all. He never says that. In fact, he makes a point right in the opening of the book to say you are a church. You are the church of God. You have been called and set apart by Christ. He doesn't question their Christianity. The problem was not that they weren't Christians. The problem was that their Christianity was not the decisive feature of their life. The decisive feature of their life was to live a happy, prosperous life like their Corinthian neighbors. 
I was telling Kiyoki this, and he said, ah, they were in love with the Corinthian dream, just like we have the American dream. And uh, that's a good way to summarize it. Because of the pervasive and powerful culture around them, they were tempted to adopt the values of the beautiful people around them. They were tempted to seek the approval of the cultural elites around them. And so, the Corinthian church was not acting like a church. They were acting like a bunch of normal humans. That's what Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 3.3. He says, when you're acting this way, he says, you're acting in the flesh. He says, you're acting like humans. He says, you're acting like mere humans. Paul's point being that the church of God is not mere humans. They are the most special, unique people on the whole world. As it says here in verse 2, they are the church of God that is in Corinth. They are sanctified in Christ Jesus, meaning they have been set apart for a special holy purpose. And Paul repeats himself, called to be saints. Not saints in terms of Roman Catholicism, but called to be people who are set apart for special use. Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. They were not mere humans. They were God's chosen holy people. As we'll see later in the book, they are God's temple on earth. They are Christ's body with the Holy Spirit indwelling them and Christ's mind guiding them. And yet they exchanged this beautiful, glorious, holy calling for the Corinthian dream. For wealth, for pleasure, for success, for honor among men. And it's this temptation, this compromise, this neglect of what is truly important that leads to all the other serious issues in their lives, in their church. So, chapters 1-4 to is all about pride and interpersonal conflict. The pride leading to the interpersonal conflict, as it always does. Just as all mere humans do, the church of Corinth, they were seeking their own glory and pride. And they were looking down upon and harming those who threatened their status. Then chapters 5 to 7. It's about sexual immorality and marital failure. Just like the world, just like mere humans, the Corinthians were selfishly using God's gift of sexuality. And then chapters 8 to 14 is all about idolatry and perversions of Christian worship. Not that they were actually worshiping idols. None of us actually worship a statue. But they were attending idolatrous ceremonies in order to fit in with the Corinthian people. They were compromising so they wouldn't be seen as outsiders. And then, this is what we get later in the book with uh, the spiritual gifts and stuff, is they were beginning to shape their worship service according to the values of the world and not God's commands. They weren't seeking to humbly receive God's powerful word by faith. Rather, they were more interested in some exciting spiritual ecstasy where they blabbered in unknown languages and were taken up into heavenly visions and experiences. They didn't want that boring stuff of God's word. They wanted something more exciting. And of course, does that sound like the American church? Tempted by pride, full of conflict, full of sexual immorality, of marital failure, of perversions of worship, of 
changing how we do church in order to fit in with the values and desires of the world? That's America, isn't it? And it's Corinth. And that's why the the book of 1 Corinthians is so relevant to us. And so this then brings us to uh, the very first practical question. Whose values do you live by? So it's not not a question of are you a Christian, but are there any of us in here who are like the Corinthians, that we are Christians, but we're living by the values of America, of Oahu, of Honolulu, rather than the values of Christ and his church? Another way to ask that is, whose approval are you seeking? Whose ostracism, whose derision do you fear? Are you driven to attain a certain lifestyle in order to keep up with the Joneses? To be seen as successful and admirable by your neighbors, by your followers on social media? Are you living according to the values of America or the values of the church of God? You cannot make the grave mistake of thinking that those are the same. They're not. What America says is to place career success at the top and to demonstrate your success by getting a nice home, driving nice cars, wearing nice clothes, going on nice vacations. And second to that, have a a good, healthy family. And then third, they say, you can tack on your Christianity to where it fits in. If you still have Sunday mornings available, then you could go to church. That'd be a good thing. Is that your life at all? Do you fit Christianity in at the end? Do you do all your work stuff? you do everything that's required of you to be the best employee you can be and go as high as you can in your career and make the most money? Do you make all those decisions and then from there think about, okay, and this is what I need to do with my family, I'll figure that in there, and then with a few hours left, yeah, I'll figure out how to get church involved in there. Is that how you approach your life? Because if that is, it just raises questions about what's most important. I would think that if the church is what's most important, you would take your responsibilities to your family, your responsibilities to the church, put those in place, say, this is what I want to be in terms of those two things, the things that matter most, and then I'll see how I can fit my career in around there, how I can make enough money to support my family and support the church. But those are the most important things in my life. Is that the case for you? It's a serious question. It's a hard question. But I'll make it even more poignant. What sacrifices have you made in your career for the sake of the church? Have you said, no, I I can't take that promotion. That That would require too much of me that I couldn't be able to serve the church like I do. Couldn't serve my family like I do. Have you purposely said, yeah, I'm not going to be able to work 70 hours this week and let down your boss because i got to serve my church. I have to be with my people. I have to serve my family. And my career, my job, it is not first in my life. Why? Because the, the values of America are not first in your life. Making money is not first in your life. Having prestige among your peers is not first in your life. What you care about is the people of God. You care about honoring them and being close to them. You're going to ask yourself uh, this way, if you weren't absolutely committed to the church, if that wasn't the priority in your life, what would look different? Would it be different at all? Or would it be just pretty much the same, except, you know, you could watch football when it's live? 
Uh, this isn't easy, and I, I, I don't mean to sound as if this is easy. It's not easy for the Corinthians, and it's not easy for us. This is a very intense, hard persecution to have everyone around us living one way, saying, this is important, this makes me happy, and us to say, no, it actually doesn't. No, I actually can look past this, and I can see that you're miserable. Actually, what matters is the kingdom that is going to last forever. It is Christ and his church. And yes, I know I'm going to look foolish. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. I'm going to look foolish to the world. I'm not going to seem as wise and smart and up-to-date and hip. I'm going to seem weird, but it doesn't matter because it's the truth. And I don't seek the approval of the world. I don't care if they think I'm a fool. I don't care if they think I'm lame. What matters is that I become like Christ, who was likewise ridiculed and ostracized by the world. It's hard. And that's precisely why we need the book of 1 Corinthians to be instructed on how to put aside worldliness and live as the temple of God, the body of Christ. And so that takes us to point number three, the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth. The the solution to this temptation uh, is ultimately the church and Christ, the head of the church, and the values that Christ gives the church. As we looked at an overarching theme for all the different problems, what I want to do now is looking at the overarching theme for how Paul addresses these issues. And again, first, it's what I've already said. Paul repeatedly addresses their problems by means of the local church. The believers in Corinth had an eternal, divine bond of unity with each other. Again, they made up God's temple on earth. They made up Christ's body. And the problem was that they did not reflect this very real spiritual reality in their actions. A few examples, Paul says in chapter 1, he says, how are you guys divided into groups and factions? He says, is Christ divided into groups, into factions? Again, you have a spiritual reality of union in Christ, and your factions on earth, your practices on earth, contradict what is spiritually true of you. You need to align your actions with what is spiritually true. Same for us. Chapter 3, again, Paul says, you guys are God's temple. You need to act like it. You need to act as if you are a holy, special, set-apart thing, one unit with each other. And then as a powerful example, and there's many more of this, in chapter 5, this is one of the amazing things of the importance of the local church and the emphasis on it in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5 is, is famous for Paul calling out a sexually immoral man who had an incestuous relationship. And the remarkable thing, though, is Paul doesn't call out the sexually immoral man directly. That's not the main issue he addresses. The main issue he addresses is with all the other Christians who didn't deal with this man. He says, how could you not deal with your brother when he is acting in such an awful, immoral, sinful way? I rebuke you for that. How could you let him going on in such a destructive uh, destructive sin and causing so much shame to the body of Christ? And you just tolerate it and say he can do what he wants. Paul addresses that sin by means of the local church. And again, there's many more examples. We'll see them. If you are a Christian, you have a divine unity with the other believers here in this room. You are spiritually united with them. That is the truth. You just need to act like it. You need to realize that spiritual bond in your practice. We are one. We truly need each other. 
and our brothers and sisters truly need you. Your responsibility is not only your own spiritual growth, but the spiritual growth of your brothers and sisters. God very well could tell you, yeah, good, nice, you've got your life figured out. But look at your brother. Look at how much sin he's caught up in. Look how discouraged he is. How come you've never said anything to him? How come you've never helped him? You have a responsibility to him. You are your brother's keeper. And this relates to one of the reasons that I love 1 Corinthians so much. It's because it's a book that's all about the local church rather than the intangible, theoretical, universal church where you could say, sure, yeah, I love the church. I love Christians. Makes it a lot more practical. Do you love the church that you attend, the people in your life? It's very practical. So, for example, when Paul says that the church is the body of Christ, he doesn't, he's not actually saying that the universal church is the body of Christ. That's true in a sense. But really what he says in chapter 12 is that the local church in Corinth, that is the body of Christ. And all together with Christ, they make up his body. When Paul says to dedicate yourself to the church, he doesn't mean some intangible idea of believers all around the world. He means the actual members of your church. The book's all about the local church. And on the other hand, Paul, throughout the book, he kind of puts that intention. He keeps reminding the Corinthian church that they're not unique, that they're not the only church. They are, instead, one of many local congregations around the world, and they are to act like one of many and not one of one. Uh, look at, at verse 2 once again, the end there. Paul says that the Corinthians are called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The Corinthian church is not unique. They are one of many all around the world. And the problem was, given the superiority of their city, now the Corinthians were tempted to think that their church was superior too. We have the most money, we're in the most influential place, we're the most important church too. Paul humbles them, though, by reminding them that they are one of many local churches around the world, and they are held to neither a higher nor lower standard than any of the other churches. As a Christian, your ministry and support should be directed primarily to one local congregation. But we are never to forget all of the other churches in our city and around the globe that are just like us and just as important as us. Because the sad reality is that a number of churches uh, have realized that it's a good marketing move to brand yourself not as just another church, but as something distinct, as something new, as unique, a new encounter with God. That sells better, and so they prominently display what sets them apart, what makes them distinct. These are our distinctives here at Reverb Excite Community Church. And um, oh, I don't like that. Uh, our distinctions are irrelevant. What's important is what we have in common with every other true congregation around the world and throughout history. I don't want a church distinctives document. I want a church commonalities document where we say, here at NBC, just like every true church throughout history and even in our city, we worship the triune God we preach and obey the Holy Scriptures. We love our brothers and sisters. We rely on God through prayer. We practice baptism in the Lord's Supper. 
That's not remarkable. It's not exciting. But at the same time, it's also the most remarkable thing in the whole world. That by God's grace, we have been called out of darkness into the fellowship of the triune God and have been made God's temple and body on earth. And now we are a part of the only enduring and the most important institution in the history of the world, the church, that continues on and on in the face of every persecution and temptation and opposition. The church goes on and on because it is not of this world. It is of heaven. And so to be simply a church that worships God like every other church does, that is an unbelievably high, beautiful, glorious calling. And there's nothing else like it on earth. And so similarly, whatever another church's problems issues that they face, let's not look down on them. Let's not see ourselves as, yeah, we're up on the mountaintop here at NBC and other churches are sprinkled down below. Yes, there are churches that are more faithful and churches that are less. First Corinthians shows us that. The church in Corinth was not a very faithful church. But let's never define ourselves as being better than the less faithful churches. Let's instead define ourselves as being the same as all the other faithful churches, of course, with our own particular failings. And let's be concerned that the less faithful churches would become more faithful, not uh, deriding them or excluding them, but thinking, hey, they call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. They, have, they are people who have been called apart by Christ, set apart for a holy purpose. And it's a sad thing that they're not being more faithful to them. And as we can, without pride, but with humility and love, we should seek to support them, realizing our own weaknesses as well. We're not special. There have been thousands, probably millions of churches, just like NBC over the millennia. And we boast in that. That's a wonderful, glorious thing. We truly have a wonderful church here at Makakilo, but that isn't because we are unique or different. It's because we are just another iteration of God's beautiful design for the church. And so while we direct our energies to NBC, we don't forget about all the other churches. We don't ignore them. Indeed, we ought to look at them and ask, are we like them? They're a church too. They are called by God too. In what ways are we different and the same? What would they think about the ways that we do our worship service, the way that we serve each other? If all of these other churches of God would disapprove of us, that should raise questions in our mind. Because again, we're not the only faithful church. We're not the only church of God. So yeah, Paul, he addresses the problems in Corinth by teaching about the church. Uh, He also addresses the problems of Corinth by repeatedly teaching about Christ's death and resurrection and the hope that we have as Christians that we, like Christ, will someday be resurrected and we will have eternal life with him. Uh, It's quite remarkable Paul addresses all kinds of issues throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. In every single instance, except for one, the head coverings, every other one, Paul, in his solution, in his address, he mentions, he reminds what Christ has done for them in the past and the hope that they have in Christ in the future. He is always reminding them of those things. And that's because our community The church is defined by Christ's work and our future hope. Just as the world defines itself by wealth, consumption, human achievement, the accumulation of pleasure, so the church defines itself by Christ's love, humiliation, and our hope that we will become like him in his resurrection. 
Uh, one theologian, he put it like this. He said, the church is like a bicycle. The back wheel is what Christ has done for us in the past, his death and resurrection. And this is what empowers us to move forward. And the front wheel of our bicycle is our hope of resurrection, our hope of eternal fellowship with God and with each other. And that's what directs us as we go along. That's what we are as the church. A group defined by Christ, defined by his humiliation, his resurrection, and the hope that he offers us. And so that's why in the the end of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, we have the greatest explanation of the resurrection in all the New Testament. It's because it's the foundation for who the church in Corinth was to be. And what Paul says there is that Christ did not just rise for himself, but in rising from the dead, he was the firstborn of the dead, meaning there are going to be other borns of the dead. There are going to be secondborns and thirdborns, etc. That's all of us. We are going to follow Christ in rising from the dead and rising to a new, immortal, perfect life. And so just briefly in conclusion, just to make it real practical, make the church the priority in your life. Make the church your primary social group. And I know that I say that. There are a number of you who say, yes, that's what I want. I, I would love so much to have close Christian friendships, to have that community. I know I need that strength, and it's just hard, though. I've tried to have that community, and I'm just not quite there yet. Maybe you're new, and I understand that. I've sat on the outskirts of church before wishing for closer relationships. I understand that, and I know it's not necessarily easy, but it is so worth your effort. And so I encourage you, you know, most simply, use the means that we have set up here at NBC for people to get involved. Become a member, faithfully participate in a family group, faithfully serve in a ministry, seek out discipleship from an older man or woman you respect. And it's going to take time. Uh, I can almost guarantee you'll have some hurt feelings along the way, you'll have some disappointments, you'll have some awkward moments. But keep going, it's worth it. And so that's why most of all, pray that the Lord would give you the Christian community that he desires all of us to have. And you can make that prayer with faith. And finally, if you're one of the people here at NBC who knows the joy of Christian community, who is very involved here, who has wonderful relationships, who knows the strength of the church, who has made the church the priority in your life, Don't just be satisfied with the community you have. Look at your brothers and sisters who might not be enjoying that community as much and do what you can to bring them in so they can share in the joy and fellowship and love that you know very well. Well, if you'd please stand for our prayer and benediction. Dear Lord, We need your grace to live as a church, to live as your people, to be little Christ in our world. Please help us make that the priority in our life. Give us wisdom to know the ways in our life that we are compromised, that we are valuing the things of America, the things of this world that is passing away, and not the things that you say are important. Please help us and please have us rejoice in this wonderful calling 
that you have given us, that we are your temple, your body. Please help our local communion here be full of joy and love and holiness, knowing this wonderful calling of being your people. Please bless us. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all evermore.